we most of the times we don't just say it. We really want to help you, yeah. but you are so drowning that you don't even know what you need at that right. moment. Exactly. You're not able to to recognize what your needs are because you have a hundred needs yeah. at that moment. You're listening to Penlight, a podcast that strives to reignite a passion for nursing for those who've lost it. My name is Maggie McGrath, and I'm a travel nurse. I love what nursing has given me over the last five years, but I fight symptoms of burnout every day. I'm opening up a space once a week for nurses to vent, to laugh, to share ways in how they cope with stress, and to offer guidance for change. As nurses, we dedicate our lives to improve the health of others. It's time to shine the pen light on nurses and nursing to improve our own health. What's up, everybody? This is Maggie McGrath. You're listening to Penlight, the podcast that shines a light on nurses and nursing. And I'm coming to you from the annual educational meeting of the American Association of Neuroscience Nurses. This weekend, we've gathered as many neuroscience divas as possible to discuss how our institutions have been shaping and improving current neuroscience nursing practice. And yesterday, I had the pleasure of running into Cindy and Morella, two women that have done some incredible work at their institution when it comes to nursing self-care. Um, and I had to have the bomb on the podcast. So thank you so much for taking the time out of the conference to sit down with me. Thanks for having us. It was an awesome, uh, yeah, I just walked by the poster yesterday and I was like, oh, what is this? You know, the color caught your eye. It the did. Lavender. Yes, the <laughs> lavender caught my eye. Um, and um, yeah, I just was, you know, you have to evaluate. I at the conference, you know, you go and evaluate posters. Everybody has, you know, from their institutions, they've come up with initiatives. Um, and so, you know, they come to the conference every year, kind of what they've learned. And um, and so this was just one of the posters. And um, I was really inspired by it because it seemed like it was pretty, you know, comparable to what I'm trying to do with the podcast. So um, I just wanted to start with, if you could just give me you know, how long you've been a nurse and what your background is, um, you know, in the neuro realm, because we're all neuro nurses at this neuroscience conference. Uh, yes, uh, uh, my name is Morella, and I am originally from Albania, and I have been a nurse there for eight years, and then I moved to the U.S. and uh, became a nurse again from scratch. And um, I've been a neuro nurse for three years, and uh, I fell in love with it. I never thought about it before. I was more of a cardio person. But then when I did my critical care fellowship and did a, my, one of the rounds in neuro, and I really fell in love with it and stayed, and I have not never looked back. Yeah. yeah. What type of um, unit are you on? Uh, we are a neurocritical care unit. Okay. Neuro ICU. So we see uh, everything from stroke patients to neurosurgery patients and a few of MS or myasthenia gravis. Or yeah, that. so you guys see everything. Mm-hmm. Wow. My name is Cindy. Um, I've been a nurse for 11 years. I started out in a step-down unit. Um, I was there for nine years, went from a new nurse to an assistant manager. And in my last couple years, uh, we transitioned the unit to a primary stroke unit. Um, so that was my first experience, really, with neuro. Mm. Um, and so you didn't really have a choice. They kind of just <laughs> rolled you into that. They, they did, you but I found be out. A stroke I, nurse now. I found out I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> but I felt like I was missing a big part of it. So when I went over to our our sister hospital. Um, 
I went into our neurocritical care unit there and um, got to experience the neurosurgery, the traumatic brain injuries, seizures, you know, things that we just didn't see mm-hmm. in our primary stroke unit because we are comprehensive. Yeah. Um, so th- it, I've enjoyed every minute of it. I'm like, and I've never seen a unit work so well together as a team. So um, we had an advantage important. when we started the Code Lavender program because we already had a really good team base with the unit mm. and the staff. So that's... Yeah, it's super important. What's been your favorite session at the conference so far? My favorite one has been the keto diet for the brain tumors. I was in that too. I absolutely was floored by the the research and I, I just, I can see it work in so many ways for yeah. our patients. So I saw that, yeah. Uh, mine was about the ICP management. Of course, you know. I don't think, right. Well, yes, you're IC yes, here, so. Yes, yeah, I don't yes. think I so, went to that uh, one. It sparked like um, the reason, not only because we talked about ICP, but he talked about how you find research uh, questions in your own, in your mm-hmm. daily practice. Like, we touched a little bit on that, and I was intrigued by that. Yeah. Like, how do you, you know, you work every day and you do these things every day, and then you have these aha moments every day, and right. how you can start from there and make changes and yeah. change your practice from there. So I was, yeah, that was really exciting. That's awesome. ICP being intracranial pressure. pressure. Yes. Yeah. I have some, like my dad listens to this podcast. So mm-hmm. you, yes. They're always like, you got to tell like, you know, the different abbreviations. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always thought it would be great to have, like when I started out, I started out as a neuro nurse um, and we had like a neural core curriculum. So they taught us all about these all these things, but it would have been so nice to like, you know, at now having classes, kind of like a refresher, you know, like I learned about ICP, but like, you know, through your whole practice over a couple of years, you're like, yeah, I know what ICP is, you know, but like that actual pathophysiology and everything you kind of lose. So. Right. And that's what's exciting about nursing because things change so much. Things evolve every day. And if you, you know, you, we don't practice the same as we practiced 35 right. years ago. So Yeah, that's so true. I mean, I've always gone, I mean, I grew up on evidence-based practice, and I know that that's not something that we've had for forever, you know, but that was, that just, they really drilled that <laughs> in our heads, yes. you know, five years ago. So, um, yeah, my favorite, I loved the ketogenic diet. I thought that that was, you know, I mean, but it makes sense, you know, tumors feed off of glucose in order to grow. So if you cut out the glucose supply with a ketogenic diet, then, you know, it, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. And then they shrink. I had no idea that before they came up with anti-seizure drugs, that that was the treatment they used for our seizure patients. Right. It's like all coming full circle. Yeah. I mean, that was amazing to me that you know, why we didn't continue to do that, mm-hmm. you know, all along. I wasn't, but, you know, that's something we learned. I'm like, we can definitely Im- implement that going forward. Yeah. And it's such an easily, easy implementation and we could help. I mean, our glio patients have such a poor prognosis mm-hmm. and 
to be able to shrink their glios just based on their diet would be amazing. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. I know we, and we were just talking about veganism and things and we were also like after that talk, I mean, we were amazed with the talk, but then we also kind of had in our heads like, you know, this, this diet is amazing for brain tumor patients, but it's not something that you can implement for, you know, people that have like, you know, if that talk were to be given at a cardiovascular conference, they would have been like, yes. What the hell? I'm I'm glad you said that because it's important to emphasize that it's important to emphasize that. Uh, And also that a diet can be good for something. It Mm -hmm. is not to be universalized and it's not, it cannot be good for everything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When they were, they um, had pictures of slides like this is an example of a breakfast tray. And all I saw was like bacon and sausage. (laughs) Okay. But like, I just watched that what the health documentary and we're like, well, sausage has contributed to colon cancer. So Mm -hmm. like, you know, (laughs) you like get rid of one and you take care of another. And there is uh, such a thing as a vegan keto. Yeah, going oh, well, on sure. out there also. So uh, it, again, it's important to say to emphasize that that yes, it is, research has shown, especially for seizures, it was, and I can see the relationship why it's now mm-hmm. about for tumors also. Yeah, but, yeah. It, it doesn't have to be meat based though. Right. It, it, right. it, it, it can be plant based mm-hmm. fats. It's just about the amount of fats that go into your diet. So. Right. That's a wonderful thing. I'm like, you can, you have a choice and you can balance that. Yeah. So. Well, I think, and I think that that's when a lot of people get in trouble with the keto diet is that they only eat, you know, the bulk of it is meat. I mean, you saw the food pyramid, the bottom of the food pyramid was meat. Mm -hmm. And so people take that into account and all they eat is meat and then they get, you know, renal issues or, you know, they're, I can't remember the other side effects of that kidney stones you know like Mm -hmm. so there's other it is moderation but plant-based diets there's so much evidence on plant-based diets you know curing people we were just talking about that so but yeah that was that was the coolest one and then this morning with the robots and um neurosurgery will robots replace your neurosurgeon that's what the title was (laughs) i don't know i like some of our neurosurgeons yeah (laughs) some of them are nice some of them are sweet (laughs) but um my my boyfriend is injury prone he's been playing hockey his whole life and he got a concussion last year or he got hit last year that ended up needing a ct scan um and i looked at it and i couldn't see anything you know and and the radiologist said it was normal, you know, and so I, we were kind of, but he was having all of these symptoms. He was, you know, difficulty sleeping and headaches and poor concentration and irritability and, you know, all of these things and just post-concussion symptoms. And, um, you know, we talked about in the talk today that that's pretty common. I mean, you know, the, the CT scan would be normal. Right. And there was a test she said about the eye movement test, which is re- was really remarkable and amazing yeah. how you would be able to detect. And she has, she had plenty of research to back that up, that yeah. how you could be able to see with, in time the effects of the concussion that you were not able to see radiologically. So right. that, that is huge. I thought that that was amazing. Because we based so much of our diagnost- diagnostics in radiology that... It was really huge right, that, that you have a test can that be, can... They can actually quantify yes. types of brain trauma. And you it know, correlates like, clinically with the clinical picture. Right. So yeah. like even if you have you know, a negative CT scan, but you're having all of these symptoms, you know, it could pick up some more sensitive 
data that could say like, okay, you do have a, you know, brain trauma or you should be taking it easy. You know, we didn't really talk about like, okay, what do you do when you, what, what do you do with that information when it becomes so sensitive? We didn't really, she didn't really talk a whole lot right, about that. Right, but that's like the starting point because right. now we have, now you cannot say that your skin is clean. You yeah. should be fine, go home. Right. Now we can say your eye movement test is positive. Right. You need to go to cognitive therapy. You yeah. need to do this. You need speech therapy or you need to take it easy. Yeah. We can give you some more extra days off. So that's huge because right. now we have backup data. Do we have, you know, facts mm-hmm. to say that, yes, you do have a concussion and you, you are suffering from it. So that's really important. Yeah. No, I was so excited about that talk. I can even see that pupil test being uh, developed to be at the bedside um, with so many of our neuro patients. Uh, you know, they were talking about, you know, pre-craniotomies uh, and craniectomies and like, and post and the difference between them. I'm like, that's mm-hmm. something that we could definitely quantify um, on our patients and would be amazing to be able to, to track their improvement that way. Yeah. So I had never even seen that type of test me either. before you know <laughs> and the way that she explained it too it's like yeah this is this is really cool so it, it is a great you know very exciting information that we're learning at this conference it so, is yeah, we can say definitely can say that that we're learning things. yes we're learning, learning lots new things. And lots yes things. yeah um so so when you go for people that have never been to a nurse conference when you go to a nurse conference you have dozens of nurses who have done amazing work at their institutions. They come to a conference with a poster, you know, a quality improvement and initiative. I've never done a poster, but I know that there's a lot that goes into it. You know, like it has to meet certain credentials and everything. Um, at some type of initiative that they've implemented and how it changed their unit. Um, and the reason that I wanted to speak to, um, to you both on the podcast is because I walked past the poster. Um, so can you explain what your initiative was at your institution um, and how it changed the practice on your unit? Absolutely. Um, one thing we noticed was that our, our nurses were... We wanted to develop a better resiliency. We were having turnover that we were not comfortable with. We, we had we were watching our, our staff get very stressed out. Um, our newer nurses that came out of our, the fellowship were really starting to struggle. Um, and we were very concerned about all of that. So we were looking for a way to um, develop a better self-care atmosphere. Um, Mm -hmm. nursing unfortunately is notorious for a nurse eat nurse mentality Mm -hmm. and um, obviously that's not going to improve resiliency so and it's not going to keep our nurses and make them better Mm -hmm. neuro nurses down the road so um, this program we developed in order to improve that and and develop an atmosphere of self-care that that made it okay to take care of yourself yeah it made it okay to take that break when you needed it and even if your patient was critical and it, you you could trust that your coworkers had your back for that so uh, that's where it started yeah um, and um, I was on the resiliency committee for her hospital and we talked about many, many ideas. Um, there were some things that had come up in, in some conferences. Um, the idea of the code lavender um, was discussed, but 
um, didn't really go any further in the committee. Mm -hmm. But as I thought about it and I did research on it, I realized that it could be the perfect thing for our unit. Mm -hmm. um, we deal with s such life and death, and more death um, than we would like mm -hmm. on our unit that um, the emotional factors were huge yeah. um, to overcome. So we needed a way for people to really um, say it was okay to need counseling, take to take whatever it is yeah. that you need, like whether it's meditation, breathing, take your break, eat, drink water, mm -hmm. so many different things. We, we, we have many things that we offer through the program, um, aromatherapy. I'm going to go a little bit with what Code Lavender is so and how we built this process, which was originally not our original idea. Uh, we, it's a trademark, uh, and I like the, his, the story of it because it was a doctor who actually started it, and it, uh, she started it with this, uh, this thing in mind, you know, how to help uh, patients and families and staff, you know, deal better with uh, the stressful situation that is being hospitalized, being in a hospital. Um, we uh, started by uh, training uh, some of our nurses. We trained them uh, to uh, with a, a, a first psychological ad course from Coursera uh, that's offered by John Hopkins, and it gives you the tools to how do you approach someone in a, in a very stressful situation, such as a disaster, or and how what is the right way to approach that person? What, what are the right questions to ask? What are the right uh, tools that you offer them? You know, like you know how we learn therapeutic communication in nursing school. Yes, that is a thing. Although we hated it then back then, <laughs> but yes, that is a thing. Um, part of all that training was also. Uh, mindfulness uh, tools, how to be mindful, how to be present in the moment, which, you know, there is so much research out there backing up mindfulness, backing up uh, breathing exercises as great tools to de-escalate de stress. Um, and we trained these nurses so they would be able to pick up in their co-workers that a co-worker was having a hard time, a co-worker was having a stressful situation, be it uh, a very difficult patient, uh, of end of life, withdrawal, or care in a patient, uh, be it um, just a very busy day, you're having one of those days that you have such a heavy assignment and you are like, cannot take it anymore. And so once the the first responder would uh, detect this, or even another coworker would detect this, like, hey, Mirella needs some help here. She's having a hard time. Um, and then they would be able to cooperate with a charge nurse who would make a reassignment type of thing that uh, someone else would watch their patients and you would be able to get away for a few minutes, uh, take a break, go get some coffee. We had, uh, we approved, we had uh, uh, some essential oils approved, which was a big thing in the hospital, you know? It's hard to get those approved. Um, and or go get some tea or just get five minutes, walk away from the situation. And that can be huge. Just the fact that you are able for a few minutes to say, uh, my patients are safe, someone else is watching, I can go away for a few minutes and breathe and regroup and put myself together and then I can come back to my patients re-energized. Yeah. That was huge. Um, I 
I've been traveling for a couple of years now, and there was only really one unit that I've been on that kind of implemented a strategy like that. But they had a nurse that would come in around noon, and her sole job was to take over patient um, assignments for lunch. And, like, you could leave off the unit for an hour. It was an hour you could leave. And, you know, and if you didn't take your lunch, like, that was you know, you were mandated to take that hour. And I had just never had that kind of relief that somebody was taking care of my patients and they were going to be cared for. But, you know, so many times on a unit, it's like, you know, okay, I have 30 minutes. Do I have a 30 minute window where everybody is okay? So I can hand off somebody and say, everybody's fine. And like, how many times does that happen? I mean, you know, it's, it's definitely a hard balance. So when you have something like that, you know, or you have, you, you have a resource that will take your patients or just take that so you can go for a minute, five minutes, you know, whatever, it's probably huge for your unit. Actually, one of our biggest barriers, because we're a critical care, is a lot of times we didn't have that moment, that 30 minutes where the patient was okay. Right. I'm so sure you don't. the nurses don't want to leave. They they want to be taking care of their patient the entire shift. Yeah. Um, sometimes we had to make them leave. Like, you need to leave. You need to get your head back together. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That was probably one of our hardest battles is that... And, and sometimes it isn't about leaving, and we don't force people to leave. Mm-hmm. But I, I even had a code 11 call on me after a patient death one time. But I, mm-hmm. I really wanted to follow through the more care with this patient. And so um, that's mm-hmm. time sensitive. Uh, so my first responder stayed with me and let me, let me talk all my feelings out while we were doing more care. So it's very individualized what we do. Yeah. We, we make sure that it works for the person that we're, we're dealing with. There have been times where I don't even think the person realizes we're using the therapeutic communication that we've learned. Yeah. Um, but we're helping them. So. Yeah. <laughs> and so can you, can you call a code lavender on yourself or yes. do people call it on you or are they both? Both. Both. There's no limit to how or who can call a code lavender. Um, if you are feeling stressed out and you need somebody to talk to, mm-hmm. like that's what it's there for. The I, the idea is to help uh, ourselves and our coworkers to get better at recognizing these moments, and and that is something very important, like acknowledging that I am having a difficult time, I'm having a hard moment, and it is okay. It is okay to say that right now I need a break. Right now. And it's okay for, it's better for you, it's better for your patients, it's safer for your patients, it's safer for your own health. So by doing this, by uh, raising awareness to, by doing this over and over again, by offering, by making the nurses aware that this is available, I'm coming to you. It doesn't have to be a huge thing. It doesn't have to be, you know, this like, um, it can be like as small as that, I acknowledge that you need help right now, and you feel that, and that in itself, we had that feedback, and it was a great feedback that that's what the nurses said, that I feel good because I feel acknowledged. I feel like my coworkers have my back. And that is nursing is a really, really important thing. Another part of the program is that 72 hours after, 
we try to make a point to follow up with the person um, to make sure that they're not kind of hanging on to those feelings. Everybody, every nurse I know has had a situation where they go home and they repeat that situation a hundred times in their head. Like, could I have done that differently? Is there something else that could have happened? Should I have called a, called a minute sooner? Should I have called a different doctor? Should I, and, and the what ifs are endless, but um, we even have our nurse practitioners as consultants for those clinical situations where you can't get them out of your head so that we can kind of have a medical opinion um, to weigh in on that. Um, so it was a whole team effort uh, when we put it together. But I've had to refer people to our employee assistance program where they get free counseling. Um, sometimes it's a matter of their, their family life is infringing on their work life. You know, we're not even dealing with work stressing them out. It's they're bringing work home, they're bringing home into work with them. So, you know, we just try to find a way for them to balance, find that balance. And I feel like we're told so often or, you know, when we were, when I was, you know, that first four months or whatever orientation or even in nursing school, you know, you're told like, leave what you leave home at home, you know, but they blend like there's, you know, there's, there's no real, there's, if, if home is bad, you can't come to work and do your job exceptionally, you know? So our brains don't work that way. Right. I mean, you worry about your family, your friends, if there's stuff going on at home, it's going to be with you. I'm like, but find, finding a way to still work. And, mm-hmm. and and I know every nurse that has been able to put their emotions kind of on the backside mm-hmm. while they do their care. And like, and I've walked in, I've had a death in one room and walked directly into my next patient's room with a smile. Yeah. You know, no clue that I, I just helped, you know, a family yeah. through a terrible situation. So, you know, we have those things that we just have to find a way to balance. And it, it can be very hard. And this uh, is what what we come off as, as nurses, and it is true, we are, you know, we are strong, we are capable, we are always, like the speaker said yesterday morning, you know, no, no hair is out of place. Um, and, but we, with the code lavender and what we're doing about resiliency and about raising awareness, is that we want to say that, no, we are nurses, we are human beings, and it is okay. It is, uh, it is okay to acknowledge that. It is okay to acknowledge that, yes, I am having a difficult time right now. And how can we help each other? How can we support each other? How can we, you know, um, build, each other, uh, build each other's strength, give strength to each other doing that? So that, that's what it ultimately comes to. Yeah. How to give each other tools that to be better, to to reply better to the situations and to take care of our own health. Because as we all know, if you're not healthy, you cannot help others right. to be healthy. Yeah. And like one of the aspects of Code Lavender, just kind of the general, the fact that it's standardized, the fact that you have a you know specific like methodical way of doing things. I mean, you normalize other nurses asking other nurses for help and actually being productive instead of, I think we were talking about this yesterday, when a nurse is, you know, in my experience, if you're drowning 
and you obviously look like you're drowning, a lot of times nurses are like, okay, do you need anything? You're fine? Okay? Okay. You know, yes. like they're, yes. like they ask you, but they really, you know, they have their own five patients to deal with. And so it's, it's hard to, you know, I, I just, I loved that part about Code Lavender, you know, because it just normalizes that whole interaction you know, that person that's actually asking for help really wants to and is required right. to yes. help it you. Is, it is not just, you know, do you need anything? Can I do something for mm-hmm. you? It is going a step further. It is mm-hmm. me acknowledging that you need something, grabbing that thing that you need, you know, and, and doing it and yeah. just doing it and taking ownership mm-hmm. of my, I'm my offer to help you. It's an actual help. Yeah. I'm not and it is true. We, we, most of the times we don't just say it. We really want to help you. Yeah. But you are so drowning that you don't even know what you need at that right. moment. Exactly. You're not able to, to recognize what your needs are because you have a hundred needs yeah. at that moment. You're, you have a hundred needs and you're trying to prioritize like what could they actually do? Yes. Could they really do anything? So my Maybe real not. help would be to see, okay, you're busy with this patient. Let me go into your chart of your other patient yeah. and see, do you need to pass any meds? Does your patient need anything? Yeah. Are your alarms going crazy your right. other rooms just so, round on my other yes. patients mm-hmm. you know or to make sure everybody's okay not only do I, I think since we started the code lavender not only do you know when we intervene we change things i have seen an overall when people go to help each other they actually are taking ownership i'm like mm-hmm. not only when they go to you know look and see if you need a med pass, they also do your safety check. They also do, you know, your pain assessment, and they actually chart it. You know, it's like that's awesome. You know, so it's those those things that you would have missed during that time because you're stuck in your other room. They're right. actually doing for you, yeah. And like and taking ownership of that that whole piece. Yeah. I've had people do an entire like neuro check for me. I'm like, which. You know, like, that's, ama- thank you, thank you, <laughs> <Yeah>. amazing. <laughs> I, like, and I feel I bet there's a sense of empowerment too when you are that uh, first responder. You know, I'm, I'm sure that they, you, the nurses on your unit take pride in that at the moment. You know, we're like I'm helping this person, or this is my, this is my job, this is the environment or the the culture that we've created. You know, that such the fact that I would be proud to be in that environment you know I would be happy to do that for somebody else I have to say I've been proud doing it I Mm -hmm. I can't speak for everybody but I I definitely know that I've been proud doing it Um, it hasn't been for everybody that's kind of some of our learning um, that we've found out along the way is that not everybody that volunteered was truly suited for it and found it actually much harder to do than than they anticipated Um, Stepping into somebody's stressful situation, you do kind of shoulder some of their stress. So I'm like, that it, it really isn't for everyone. Um, to be a first responder. To be a first responder, Yes, correct. because you can. It takes so much empathy, and it takes, uh, and some, and we know as nurses, we each of one of us has a different personality. Some of us are more, you know, uh, eccentric, and some of us are more introverts, and some of us are more outspoken, and uh, some of us have more patience. Some of us are not, and but uh, so the first responder is someone who. Uh, has empathy, someone who is patient, someone who is, who is very self-aware. That's what I've found. You have to be self-aware. You have to assess at, uh, at the moment, 
you have to assess the other person that you're trying to help, but you also have to assess yourself. You have to assess your own reaction. Why am I reacting like this? Like, what, what is this triggering? Because it, it's triggering. You are, you know, in your interactions, the other person is triggering some type of reaction in yourself, too. So it is, you know, and this is like a process that we, we are still working on, mm -hmm. and we want to get more training on board. We want, you know, to be able to offer more training. We've been very lucky in that our pastoral care services super supports us on all of this. Um, we have a great, Carol great, is, great chaplain, which we want to call she out. Is, she is one of our ch champions, yes. and she has truly been ultra supportive. She gave us all gift bags to come out here. I'm like, she, yes. and like in, you know, in true Code Lavender fashion, very holistic. We, have, <laughs> we are very lucky to have a chaplain that she is not only a chap there for families and patients, she's there for us too. So we yes. are very lucky to have a chaplain for the staff also. So she takes care of each one of us. She does. Yes. I think that's something to... That's a note that everybody listening should put in their book. Yes. You know, like, I mean, just having a chaplain that can be there. That's the first time I've heard that. Yes. Uh, our chaplain, she has uh, two units, I think, uh, that are critical care units. So she is, uh, and I think it's also something personal of her, you know, that speaks mm -hmm. a lot about her personally, that she takes care of patients and families every time that we need her to, but she also takes care of us. Yeah. She has always, you know, a, a nice word, a smile, a an ear to listen to, whatever we might have, even if it be it personal or professional. Yeah. So, and she was a very important part of this project. She was a very important part, and she helped a lot with training because being a chaplain, she knows so much more than we do about mm. empathy, about communication, yeah. about how you help people emotionally and spiritually, mm. because this is ultimately about emotional and spiritual self-care yeah i'm sure she's such a wealth of knowledge it seems like you know those are such hard conversations to have with patients you know and they just they know how to do that so well they're so seasoned in it so that's a great person to have great resource yeah i mean if anybody's looking at going forward getting your pastoral care services on board with you is probably critical i mean to have that person as a champion it, their, their skills and their the things that they know already just enhance the program so much. Mm. So, Did this initiative spark personal interest because of experiences that you both have had, or did you notice Code Lavender as like a general need for other people on the unit? Or, And if it was a personal infants, can you um, share a time on your, from your unit where you think it could have helped the situation before it was implemented? I can definitely speak to that. Um, my previous unit uh, was a step-down unit. Um, originally started out having three patient ratio, three to one ratio, um, maxed us up on day shift to five to one um, with the same patients, didn't change the, the level of care at all. Um, so I watched a lot of nurses run away, like, for their lives <laughs> and their license. <laughs> and um, and that, there were many times that the, the frustration and the stress got to me. I, I cried more than I want to admit on that unit. Um, when I came over to the critical care unit, um, the, the one 
time that I could have truly used the code lavender, but didn't exist yet. <laughs> um, I had a patient coming up from a thrombectomy, and um, he actually came up. He coded right before they brought him up. Then they called, said he was fine, brought him up, um, got him on our monitors, and he was still coding. Um, and that wasn't the part that got me. The, unfortunately, the patient didn't end up making it. Um, and during the whole thing, I, I was getting meds, getting charting, and that type of stuff. I never was at the head of the bed. I hadn't seen, really gotten a good look at the patient yet because we rolled him up and started coding him immediately. Respiratory was up at the top of the bed. I couldn't see him. Um, when they were all done, I took a look at this man and I recognized him, and his wife was out in the hall, and I was talking to her, and she's like, you might know him. He um, worked at one of our, our other hospitals, one of our sister hospitals, and she said, but everybody knew him by this nickname, and I'm like, and she told me the nickname, and I'm like, oh my God. He was my first boss at, at my job. Oh my God. And I'm like, it had been a number of years. I, I'd worked for the company for 17 years, so I'm like, it had been a lot of years since I'd seen him. But wow, I was, I just, from that point on, I was not, <laughs> luckily it was the end of my shift because I was not good at that you, point. Yeah, done. I'm like, yeah, I had hit my level, but I could have truly used the emotional support at that point. Yeah, and right. And I still picture the whole scene very Talk clearly. about blending. Right. You know, like blending your personal life with work, you know? Oh, yeah. Like, that's just, I can't get that out of your head. Yeah, and he is, a, and, I, and I remember him, he, he knew every, every employee's name. I'm like, he remembered everyone's, um, you know, mm. just a very happy, fun man. And I'm just like, to have been there at that time was hard for me. Like, yeah. Because... Well, and for it to be a surprise. Yeah, it was not the way we expected things to go for him. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But and so in that situation, if you had a code lavender, I mean, I then, truly could have used one at that time. And, yeah. you know, to have the support, the emotional support from my coworkers to sit down and cry whatever I needed to do mm. would have been great. Yeah. Yeah. I was still fairly new on the unit. I, I wasn't that crazy trusting of my emotions with everybody so mm -hmm. um it would have been great but mm -hmm. so uh for me it was more and started as an interest in personal care as an interest well working in critical care in neurocritical care mm -hmm. which as we know is very stressful and um also for my personal like i was into you know into a search for myself and for my well-being and my health and uh, get into mindfulness and meditation and uh, coping mechanisms, how to, to have healthy coping mechanisms, healthy tools, and into resiliency, which is one of my interests professionally, nursing, specifically nursing resiliency. Mm -hmm. And we talked about this yesterday, how I was very surprised to find out that critical care nurses, um, and there is research out there, I'm loosely quoting, uh, critical care nurses leave this profession for various reasons, either retiring or moving on to other things, mm -hmm. uh, with as much resilience as they started it. 
So that's those tools that you have for yourself to protect yourself that you start when you come into the profession are the same that you leave. So how, what are we doing to help these nurses build their right. resiliency and how are we helping them? Right. And when I think about the younger generations that are coming out of nursing school and they're coming out so young mm-hmm. and how, I don't even they know, don't know like, how to do I mean, how, how many tools, how much, yeah. Do they have enough tools to deal with a stressful life that is to be a nurse, to be, mm-hmm. to work in critical care or even in, in whatever field of nursing you are mm-hmm. working. So that's how I got interested in it. It's like, how can we help nurses build more resiliency? Mm-hmm. Because nurse, resilient nurses are going to be better nurses, better human beings, mm-hmm. and have everything is going to have a, have a ripple ref- effect. Yeah, and that's what we're seeing with our code lavender, a ripple effect. Mm-hmm. We're seeing that the culture is changing, as Cindy said. Mm-hmm. The teamwork culture is changing, and it is amazing to see how, if a nurse has a very, very, hard, very busy patient that they're giving blood, they're giving platelets, they're doing this and that, they're traveling three times a day, MRI, CT, this and that, there, and there is always, there's going to be another coworker that is going to take over for their other patient. Mm-hmm. Their other patient is not going to be left unattended. We have Mm -hmm. done that and we've taken turns. Okay, I'm going to do this hour. You know, it's neurocritical care. You have Q1 neurochecks. You have, you know, both of your patients are usually very busy. Yeah. And they are as important as each other. Mm -hmm. So, and we have done that. And changing the culture is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. And it's not a quick thing by any means. No, absolutely. We trialed this for six months. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, want to continue. And uh, it's, we are very excited because we've had such a great uh, feedback and interest here at the conference. I'm sure. I mean, you just, yes. you, you equip, you armor your nurses. You put armor on them. Like we get hit by so many things throughout the day coming from patients, coming from doctors. Like, oh, you didn't get vitals on time. Like I need them now. We're like, well, I've been in... I've, I'm not sitting on my ass, you know, like, yes. <laughs> like so many, you, you get hit from family members, you get hit from management. Like you need to, you know, make sure that you do your pain reassessment scores. Like it's, and it, it just weighs you down so much. But if you have somebody that can, you know, be acutely recognizing that and to help you and pick you up and then you develop those same skills to do that for somebody else it is i see you it is a culture of i see you Mm -hmm. i see you i uh acknowledge what you're going through and then we have this great effect because management is also part of it because when we as code lavender first responders see this person who needs one, then we go to management and we say, okay, this person needs help and management is willing to help. Yeah. So that also creates a better culture of cooperation of, of communication with management. Mm-hmm. And how amazing is that that you feel we, we want to get to that point that you feel supported from your coworkers and you also feel supported from management. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we can take amazing. things you know, up to the resiliency committee mm-hmm. and to the leadership Mm. and make things better for everyone. Mm. I have to like call out our manager, Kristen, because from the minute I presented this whole concept to her, she grabbed onto it, and we had a budget for it like within a month. 
I mean, it was very quick. That's awesome. Um, and as you know, money doesn't flow very fast in the hospital. So mm-hmm. for her to to really grab onto that and yeah. and get a budget for us so fast, I was so impressed with that. Well, she was like, probably aware of the ripple the ripple that it would have. You know, like she, like when you when you're managing such a stressful unit and you know all of your team members are you know, at this high stress level and you, uh, you know, the only thing you can do is, you know, see it from afar and like try to help out as much you can. I'm sure she was, you know, thrilled to have some kind of, you know, outlet of, you know, helping my nurses kind of refill their cups so they can come in the next day. Absolutely. And if it helps resiliency, I'm sure she would love to lower our turnover. So (laughs) absolutely. So is there something that you could, a little bit of advice that you could maybe give to a nurse listening right now that, you know, doesn't want to come in to work tomorrow because of the stress that she deals with on a day to day? Is there something, some piece of advice that you could tell listeners um, about how to build that resiliency um, for their next shift? I think I would start with, is just breathe. I'm like, you you get yourself, I, I've been there, I've sat in the car where I don't want to come in. Like, you just need to slow yourself down, take some deep breaths, just nice, slow, deep breaths in and out until your brain clears and, and know that this is just one day and you just have to make it through 12 hours. I'm like, and, and what, during that 12 hours, if you can make one other nurse's life better during that time you'll start that flow so be the be this be the change that you want to see I'm like if you could do that then you're going to start just a, a whole new atmosphere on your unit so that's what I would say um, I would uh, my advice would be uh, we are so good as nurses to take care of everybody else and as nurses and most of us as mothers, the ones who are mothers, um, I would advise in those difficult moments, in those most difficult moments, try and turn towards yourself. Try and close your eyes and look inside of you and try and be, uh, be nice to yourself, be tender to yourself, mm-hmm. love yourself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Think of the person that you most love in this world and turn that love towards yourself. So use something that you like to do. I don't know, go get your nails done or go Mm -hmm. get your hair cut or go get a massage or just do whatever makes you feel better. Give yourself some Mm self-love because you are a nurse Mm -hmm. and you save lives for a living. What you do every day has a an amazing impact on other people's lives. Mm -hmm. So you are amazing. You are great at what you do. So love yourself. That's the advice I would give. That's awesome. Thank you guys so much. I'm so happy that I had you guys on for the podcast and that I met you yesterday. This has been awesome for me. I'm sorry that the train was in the background the whole time. But well, thank you so much for having yeah, us. Course. Thank you. And we, I, I'm really glad I met you. Yeah, yes. Thank you so much. Amazing. Thank you so much, Maggie. Cheers. This has been wonderful. Awesome. 
This is Penlight. Thank you so much for listening. If you have questions or comments about this episode, feel free to shoot me an email, penlightpodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear your input. Um, That's it for this episode, and thank you for listening to this nurse.